Welcome, everyone, and uh, I want to give a, a real welcome to everyone who's worshiping at, at whichever campus you're at today. We're so glad that you're here on this awesome weekend where we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. I heard about a little five-year-old preacher's son growing up in a preacher's home, a pastor's home, and part of the family. He's just five years old, this little guy, and he's playing outside when his mother called him in the house to come to Easter dinner. And so the little guy was making a beeline through the kitchen for the dinner table when his mom stopped him dead in his tracks and said, Billy, go wash your hands. He said, Mom, why do I need to wash my hands? She said, to get rid of the germs. And as Billy turned toward the bathroom, he was heard to say, germs in Jesus, germs in Jesus. That's all I hear around here, and I've never seen either one. <laughs> you know what? That's the problem a lot of people have at Easter. See, seeing is believing to most people. But Easter is about something we cannot see with our physical eyes or touch with our physical hands. And yet we're asked to believe in something that we cannot prove in a test tube. That's what this Easter weekend, this celebration of the resurrection is all about. See, we live in a scientific age when we believe and we want our reality be, to be based on facts and findings and formulas. Several generations ago, the fiery atheist Sinclair Lewis, who wrote a number of novels, and uh, among them Elmer Gantry, which is kind of cynical take on evangelist, Sinclair Lewis would go around lecturing as an atheist. And he had this point in his lecture where he would stop and he would taunt God. And he would say, he would look up to the heavens and he would go, God, if you're there, strike me dead. And when it didn't happen, he would look to the audience and go, see, God doesn't exist. I think it's good for Sinclair Lewis that God doesn't always give us the proofs we want <laughs> right when we ask for them. That reminds me of that scene in the old movie, Forrest Gump, you know, where the guy is up on the mast of the ship during the hurricane, and he's taunting God, come and get me, come and get me. And of course, God doesn't come and get him. He doesn't always play our little game and give us the proof that we're looking for at the moment. But come on, friends, haven't you ever had a moment? Haven't you ever had a moment at Easter where you just wish God would so dramatically prove the resurrection that we'd all go, see, there it is. Surely, surely no one can ever doubt it again. The proof is crystal clear. Well, that's what Thomas the Apostle wanted. You see, Jesus had appeared to the other disciples. But Thomas wasn't with them when that happened. And so... Thomas wanted a dramatic, decisive proof of the resurrection. And he said, if I don't get it, I'm not going to believe it. Perhaps some of you have seen the musical Peter Pan. Debbie and I took our children when they were about five or six years old to Proctor's. 
to see that delightful little musical. Very entertaining. And there's a point in the musical where Tinkerbell begins to fade out. And so it's sort of an audience participation moment. And Peter Penn says the only way, the only way you can get Tinkerbell to come back is to believe really hard in fairies. And so Peter Pan comes out to the edge of the stage and says, boys and girls, what about it? What about you? Do you believe in fairies? And all the kids are shouting back and responding. Okay, now everybody, everybody, close your eyes and believe real hard and say, I believe in fairies. I believe in fairies. That's the only way we can resuscitate Tinkerbell. You know, there's some people who believe that that's kind of what we're doing today. We all kind of come together on Easter and we close our eyes and we say, I believe in the resurrection. I believe in the resurrection. But Thomas was not about to close his eyes. In John's Gospel, chapter 20, he said, unless... I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side. I will not believe it. Thomas was a realist. Thomas with a degree from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in engineering up on his wall. He was nobody's fool. Thomas who called a spade a spade. He said, guys... Let me give it to you straight. Unless the tests come back positive, you can count me out. You know who I think the exact opposite of Thomas was on the apostle team? We talked about him last week. I think the opposite of Thomas was Simon Peter. I mean, think about it. You're never going to catch Thomas leaping out of a boat and swimming towards shore to see Jesus. Who's too stayed for that? You're never, certainly going to never find Thomas stepping out of a boat during a furious storm and daring to walk on the water. You're not going to find Thomas impetuously slicing off the ear of the servant of the high priest with the soldiers breathing down his neck. Not Thomas. It frankly didn't matter one bit to Thomas if Peter believed in the resurrection. Peter believed in anything. Not Thomas. He had a copy of Scientific Palestinian on his coffee table. It was about facts and formulas and figures and test tubes. And when it came to the resurrection, Thomas was not a person of faith. Hear me today. Thomas believed what he could see. What had he seen? He had seen the man that he put all of his trust in, his Lord. He had seen him nailed to a rugged cross and buried. He had seen he and his other colleagues, followers of this Jesus, flee in fear. And now what Thomas had seen was all of them hiding out in fear behind closed doors for days now trying to fly under the radar and keep themselves out of the eyes of the religious leaders. That's what Thomas had seen. <laughs> he was a realist. And his realism told him things are looking pretty bleak right now. But you know what? I think we can learn from a guy like that. 
I want you to understand how we can learn from a guy like this, what kind of person he is. No, he's not the guy you're going to call up on a Saturday evening to go out for a few laughs. But if you're buying a used car, you want to call Thomas. You know why? He's going to show up with a clipboard. And he's going to be asking all the gnarly, tough, almost to the point of embarrassingly obnoxious questions. He's going to probe and get to the heart of this. That's the kind of guy he was. What we've got here in Thomas, and I'm so thankful, at the most pivotal moment in human history we've got a guy walking around with a clipboard as it were asking all the tough questions you've got in thomas a guy who's not going to dare yell he is risen based on a few rumors even the empty tomb wasn't enough for thomas because shoot somebody could have swiped the body he's not an easy sell He's not going to believe just because others believe. And hear me today, don't you dare come talking to Thomas about these fuzzy feelings in your tummy that you just know it's true. Don't talk to Thomas about blossoms and bunnies and the eternal return of the robin in springtime. That doesn't mean a thing to him. Thomas says, look, talk to me through my fingertips or don't talk to me at all. Either my Lord is dead and buried, or he's risen and he's alive. It's one or the other. It's all or it's nothing. I kind of like a guy like that. That's the kind of guy you can learn from. He's not gullible. He's not going to be duped. So what did Thomas discover in his inquiry? Verse 26, a week later... His disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Now, let's pause there. I've always wondered what it would have been like for Thomas during that week to be around all those other believing disciples when he was still unbelieving as far as the resurrection goes. And by the way, if you're here today and you feel a little out of place or uncomfortable because you're not truly convinced yet that what we celebrate at Easter is really, really true, then I commend you. Because like Thomas, you're open to new data. And perhaps like Thomas, you're a miracle just waiting to happen. But buckle your seatbelt for what's about to happen here. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And Thomas here, as Jesus speaks to him, is about to hear parroted back some of his very words. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. He's saying, look, Thomas, here I am. Do your battery of tests. I'm not going anywhere. Check it out. Check out the evidence. And what does Thomas do in that moment? Does he pull out his microscope and say, oh, the DNA evidence is impressive. His blood matches the same blood we took from a splinter on the cross. Does he pull out his stethoscope and go, ooh, vital signs are strong. 
Does he gaze at the nail holes and go, ah, this shows me that this is the same size and angle of the nails that went into Jesus' hands. None of that. When faced with the evidence of the living, risen Christ, he falls to his knees and declares, get this, my Lord and my God. Now listen, listen, listen. In that statement, Thomas goes from the pit of despair to the pinnacle of Easter hope. Listen, listen. In that one simple but profound declaration, Thomas says more. He goes further than any of the other disciples had gone up to this point. Who would have ever thought it? Who would have ever guessed that it was from crusty, old, dubious Thomas that you're going to get the clearest and greatest declaration of who Jesus is, my Lord and my God. And then, and then, Jesus has some carefully chosen words for Thomas. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you've believed. Get this part. Blessed are those. Hey, listen, if you're checking out Christianity, if, if you're kind of find that you've got some of the traits that Thomas has, get this part. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In other words, friends, you and I as believers have a higher level of faith than Thomas because we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, please don't misunderstand what all this means. Are we saying that after Thomas... Because he was such a nerd when it came to the evidence. Nobody dare ask any hard questions anymore. Is that what we're saying? What are we saying here? Are we saying that, look, because Thomas checked out the evidence, look, we need not ask any hard questions again. Oh, no, that's not what we're saying. What I'm saying is that we have evidence that Thomas could have never dreamed of. And that evidence should make us declare, my Lord and my God. One of the best lessons we can learn from Thomas on Easter is to look at the evidence, to check it out. Now, we could spend hours doing that. We're not. But I'm going to highlight for you real quick six items that if you honestly, whether you've been a long-time believer and you just want a reaffirmation of some of the evidences for our faith at Easter, what we believe, or if you're window shopping this, you're wondering, you're questioning, you're kind of like Thomas was that week until he met the risen Christ face to face, you're, you're kind of feeling like, I'm not sure I really buy all this. Here's six items that I would ask you to consider. Item number one. The historical fact that someone named Jesus of Nazareth was executed around 30 A.D. and the Roman occupied province of Palestine is a matter beyond historical doubt. Item number two. A new religious movement broke out that spread like wildfire. It spread to major cities, cities like Rome, Ephesus, 
Antioch. My goodness, it went to the interior of Turkey, all the way to the Russian border. It went to northern Africa, to cities like Alexandria. And everywhere it went, lives were being changed. Something had happened. But what? What was the question? What a movement. Item three. This one is one I can't get around. At the core of this amazing movement was a group of men, very intelligent, very sane disciples who claimed that their leader had been bodily raised from the dead. Now, here's the deal. People spin hoaxes all the time. People create these scenarios and they lie and they cover up. But someone always blows the whistle. And here's the deal. Every one of these guys died horrible, ugly, tortured deaths for their belief in the resurrection. Now listen, hear me. People die every day for things that are false, but they believe they're true. I hope you track with what I'm saying. Every day, people die for things that are false, but they believe they're true. But people don't die for things that they know are false. All they got to say while they're being tortured to death is just kidding. It was a cover-up. We made it all up. But all of them went to their death affirming his resurrection. Item number four. What about their transformed personalities? These guys were cowards. At the crucifixion, they all ran away in fear and deserted. What was it that caused this scattered group of quitters who were spread to the wind to congeal and come back together and launch a movement the likes of which the world has never seen? I mean, what would cause the Simon Peter, who three times denied that he even knew Christ, to come back just a few weeks later, a few weeks later, and fearlessly stand in front of the enemies of Christ? And boldly declare the gospel and not even care if he lived or died. What would cause of Paul, who was a nasty little terrorist, and that's exactly what he was. He was just a little terrorist. To be so transformed in personality that he became the world's number one acknowledged expert on the subject of love. Item number five. There were hundreds of people who claimed they saw the risen Christ. By the way, if you want to read probably what is most the, the most important single document on this in the early church, it would be 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in the Bible, the first 10 verses. And the first few verses there of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the witnesses of the risen Christ. He names James, he names Peter, the apostles. He throws his own name in there. And here's what he says. And he appeared to 500 of the brothers at the same time, get this, most of whom are still living. Because this was only about roughly 20 years after the resurrection. Almost 56 years ago, President John F. Kennedy died. And some of you who were around then remember that day as though it were yesterday. You know exactly what you were doing when you got that news. That was 56 years ago. And you can still speak about it clearly. What Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 15 
was just 20 years after the event. He says, look, I can give you their names. They live around here. Don't take my word for it. Go talk to them. They'll gladly tell you what they saw and heard. Talk to these people. And finally, item number six. Jesus Christ is alive within the life of this congregation. That's one of the reasons I believe. I mean, folks, I can take you to scores of married couples right now who once were ready to throw in the towel on their marriage, they thought it was a hopeless end. And then came Jesus Christ and changed everything. And they learned to forgive, and they learned to renew their mind, and they learned to love again. And today they would tell you they're more happily married than ever. I can take you to dozens of people in this congregation, Grace Fellowship, who once thought life was just one bad day after the next. They were caught up in addictions they had no control over. Hurts, habits, hang-ups that were spiraling their lives out of control. And then came Jesus Christ, and they met the risen Christ. He gave them power and hope, and he gave them a reason to live, and he gave them power to overcome those addictions. I can, I can take you to hundreds who thought that Life had no point or purpose. And they wondered what it was all about. They didn't know where they came from or where they were going. And then came Jesus. Today, they know who they are. They know where they came from. They know where they're going. And every day is infused with meaning. I'm telling you, I believe in Jesus, if for no other reason, that he's changing the lives of people today. I met a dear woman this week in our congregation. I'd never met her face-to-face -face before. I'd only received an email or two from her. She's in her 60s. She'd been religious all of her life and out of duty went to church faithfully. It had not a lot of meaning. There was no personal aspect to it, no joy, certainly. And about a year ago, she heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. She was gloriously saved and transformed after being religious all of her life. And now she fully understands the gospel of grace. And she gleamed. Her eyes twinkled and she talked about how precious Jesus is to her. He is changing her life day by day. That's the story of so many. Transformed. We have evidences Thomas never dreamed of. So I hope you can see today, to believe in the resurrection is not this gigantic leap of faith in the dark across the Grand Canyon at midnight. No, no. But it is a step of faith. The evidence can take you here. The evidence can take you only so far. But then it becomes a matter of the heart. The evidence can take you here, but to become an Easter person requires a step of faith based on powerful evidence that Jesus is alive. And all I got to say to you is this, how tragic, how sad, how dismal it would be if you came to church, but you missed Easter by 18 inches the distance between your head and your heart. 
So go ahead, Thomas. Do your battery of tests. Check out all the evidence. But the evidence demands a verdict. My Lord and my God. Have you come to that verdict? I'm convinced that the evidence is impressive. But I'm convinced that only God can bring you to the true verdict of my Lord and my God. And that step of faith is what I'm inviting you into right now. We're going to close this message today. Our team is going to return. We're going to continue for just a few more moments here in celebration. But right now, I want to challenge you. I want to urge you to bow your head, and I want to pray a prayer with you. Can I have the privilege of doing that? And I want to ask you in this moment, whatever campus you're worshiping at, I want to ask you in this moment, if God has brought you to a place of saying, with Thomas, I believe, my Lord and my God, that's who I believe you are. I yield my life to you. I want to ask you to do that right now. So as we bow our heads, I ask you to pray this prayer right where you are, silently, phrase by phrase after me, oh God. Thank you for dying for me. I know that I'm a sinner in desperate need. Please forgive me. Forgive me for running my own life. I yield it up to you. I declare today that you are Lord and God, I give my life to you. Now, Father, I pray for those who've prayed that prayer today, and we've seen multiplied hundreds through the years who have yielded their life in just this way, and it's the first start of a great journey with Christ. I ask that you would protect and seal them, and Father, that they would begin to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for what we can learn from Thomas at Easter. There's a whole lot. And thank you that you are indeed Lord and God. In Jesus' name, amen.